I think if you asked, am I more the science of rowing or the art of rowing? I think I'm more on the art side. That's why I don't get involved much with programs. I think rig's hell of important. Um, and I arrived there and then I was taken by Dustin Butler and Roger Barrow to a pub and interrogate. There was a magic in that combination of Seaswear, Matt, uh, Bean and Tomo. Sometimes crews just click. So one of the, the godfathers of South African rowing is Paul Jackson and he's been around since the beginning of uh, rowing or the invention of the boat. So we managed to, to find him and have a really cool chat. People of the South African rowing community will know Jaco distinctly for his charisma and his passion that he has um, for rowing. And like Lauren said, he's been involved in rowing for a number of years and he has seen the sport develop from a amateur level to the, the professional level i think that passion and that love of rowing really comes through in the interview i mean he really just gets into the cool stories that he has about rowing paul as you'll hear he's all about the the magic and the art of rowing it's not as much of a science to him he likes to look at a boat and and see how the boat flows and 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 it's all that sort of aspect of rowing which which is just as important i think as the the science of rowing of course and another great thing that we talk about is the 2012 olympic gold we've spoken about this quite a bit on the show but we haven't heard from his perspective of a coach and jackal was heavily involved in that process the big part of this interview for us was to try get across the personality that is paul jackson and yeah he just has such a such an interesting story to tell and just, I love the way he speaks about rowing and, and how much respect and passion he has for the sport. Yeah, guys, enjoy the show as we really had a lot of fun recording it. Uh, let us know what you think. Send us an email about anything you would like to see in the row show or anything that you didn't like. Yeah, we, we really want to improve the show as much as we can. So share it and let us know what you think. Yeah, we've got some really exciting stuff coming up in the next few weeks. We, we're really starting to expand the show. Uh, it's starting to do a bit better and... We got some some really cool interviews with some exciting people. So keep your eyes open or your ears open, and yeah, enjoy. You can find us on Instagram at the Roshow SA, or you can email us at uh, the Roshow SA at gmail.com. So yeah, go hit us up with uh, some comments, and yeah, let us know what you think. Cheers, guys. Enjoy the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Roshow. We are your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jay Green. This is a podcast where we're going to be going into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a bit about rowing. In South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. Yeah, right. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, crucial roles, high fit. Passion. Great. Passion, fiction, gold, ultimate gold. Glory, relentless training, pain. Pain. <laughs> I'm Jacko Jackson in rowing circles, sometimes known as Paul. Um, or Uncle uh, P-Dog. <laughs> or Uncle P-Dog <laughs> by Uncle P-Dog. <laughs> anyway, um, I've been rowing since 1974. And I've been part of the national setup since 2010. And before that, from 92 till 2000, the Sydney Olympics 2000. I'm an old oar. Everyone in South African rowing knows that you're very, very pas- passionate and charismatic when it comes to the rowing. Could you just chat to us, you know, where does it, where does it come from? Did it start at school, university, or was there any particular event or something that, that really got you inspired by the sport? 
So I was brought up in Uganda. The place I was brought up is a little town called Jinja. And Jinja has an enormous lake there. In fact, the second biggest one in the world called Lake Victoria. There's a story to this. My old man is an, was an ichthyologist who studied fish. And so I spent a lot of time as a lighty messing around in boats. Um, sailboats, but mostly rowing boats. Then I got to St. Andrew's College in Grahamstown and decided cricket wasn't for me. So I went to the rowing club and lo and behold, I could row. The action, the feel of a boat, all that sort of stuff came fairly naturally to me. I was a bit of a bad oak, so I was thrown out of the rowing club <laughs> when I was 16. I was back in sort of matric a bit. Why did you get, th- why did you get thrown out? I think it was a combination of drinking and smoking. <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't go well with rowing. No, uh, there was a very strict rule at San Andrews that if you were caught, you were bus smoking, you were out as, as a rowing club. And unfortunately, I was bust. <laughs> so, um, no, I did a bit of rowing matric, but most of my rowing started at Maritzburg University. And slowly over years, I was under, I was the... Uh, um, C division, what was it called? Senior C's, theirs was. And then senior B's, then senior A's, then senior A leads. So essentially grew from 79 through 82 when I represented South Africa on a sanctions busting tour. It was a bit like kissing your sister. I think I've been <laughs> quoted this. Um, but essentially you'd go overseas and race club regattas like Marlowe, Henley, Bedford, and we held the record of Bedford for many years in the Cox's Four. And most of my rowing was in Cox's Four, which is, of course, the best boat in rowing. <laughs> oh, There's nothing that comes close, um, in my humble opinion. So, and then um, 84, um, tried, it, tried out for the national team, didn't quite make it 84. Carried on till 87, and then started coaching at... Uh, since then, we had moved to Joburg. My wife was teaching there. At the end of 87, I started coaching at Saints. And that's your first hand in, in coaching? Yeah, I rode quite a lot. And then, yeah, started coaching in 87. Um, basically, they asked me to come and be one of the assistant coaches in the first state. And in 88, I took over. And then I found out a knack for coaching. I don't know why, um, but uh, since Dillian's was, we'd won eight of the last ten SA champs when I'd left. So we it's a had, good record. Yeah, not all mine, but certainly we, I think we lost SA champs once when I was there. And then my, my sort of last year, AJ Grant was a uh, stroke. Okay. That's AJ, oh, <laughs> he, was, uh, one of, he was a fairly mean athlete, let me not lie. We won SA Champs in typical fashion. We took the lead in, at the 1,200-meter mark, you know, bide our time. You know, the standard racing strategy that I think I've followed all my life is even paced rowing, and uh, we were down, and uh, we sort of came up, did a mother of a push, and um, took the lead, I guess, about the 1,400-meter mark. No, we certainly won SA Champs that year. So were you coaching full-time at that point? No, I've never coached you never full-time. full-time. I've always okay. been an amateur coach. Okay. I've always been a development finance financing guy. Okay. Ever since. Um, but I've managed to be able to juggle it. But in 1982, in addition to Saints, I then coached the national team. We trained at, um, at Wormapan. And the next thing this bunch from Old Eds pitched. 
and said, Buddha, I look at them. You know, lots of people ask you to look at them. So I said, fine, come and, come and train with us. And it turned out that my saints ape was clubbing this crew. They sort of came and then, and I looked at them and I said, yeah, take that oak at two and make him the stroke and take that oak at stroke and put him at six. And I would sort of rearrange their crew. Anyway, the next day they were there again, waited for us to get on order. There they were. And lo and behold, they'd taken exactly what I'd said. The guy I didn't know was Mike Hasselbach. He was the stroke of both the Atlanta Olympics and the Sydney Olympics teams that I took. And the guy I put at seven was his brother, Steve. I, I then took them over, uh, old Eds, because suddenly they started moving and started clapping the Saints Oaks. They went under Martin Kennard to Barcelona. And then I took Is the that, light- That's 92. That's 92. Okay. And I took the lightweight eight <laughs> to Montreal, the World Championships in Montreal, because lightweights weren't part of the Olympics, Olympics in yes. 92. 96 was the first time they accepted lightweights back. And I took an eight across there, and I think we got eight. I mean, we got clapped. And entirely my fault, you know, because at that stage, everybody worked. You could, there was no full-time athletes. Um, and we had a big, big concept of overtraining. Uh, and it took a while for me to dawn on me that it wasn't overtraining, it was underresting. And, you know, these two are the, sa- this, the, the same side, uh, two sides of the same coin. And so when we went to, and remember that both the, Atlanta Olympics in 96 and the Sydney Olympics, all amateur guys, all worked. Um, and I wrote a paper at the time to, you know, to, to the powers that be and that saying, guys, we're not training too hard, we're not resting enough. And that's because the guys would train, 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 we'd be on the water like up at five, then they'd work the whole day, then we'd do gym in the evening. Or, and I was doing it with them because I could also work in that. Anyway, interesting where we've come from. It is oh, very interesting. When did when did you when did you see the? Because obviously you trained to Athens and then took a break for some time. Did you when did you see it change almost from more of a part time thing to the, being a little bit more money and, and athletes taking it a little bit more seriously and finding people committing full time? Okay, so the first the last Olympics I did was Sydney. So I did Atlanta and Sydney. I didn't do Athens. Oh yes, Sydney. I then. Retired from rowing in 2000. And then Rog phoned me in 2010 and said, come back. And I think it was changing around Sydney. It became very clear. I mean, Sydney, we got, we came fifth. Eh? Yeah, because we had uh, Don Ramon competing in the pair. Yes, they were kind of the young Dukes. They were the wannabes. They weren't very good at that stage, but they made the final. Yes. That was um, their, that's their first international final. Yeah. And then, but pausing with the lightweight four, and that was the flagship boat of that year. Yeah, we were the quick boys, and then uh, don't forget Helen and Colleen in the, in the awesome. women's pair. And they had a blinder heat, got straight into the final, and, and they, precisely what happened to us at Atlanta, we, we won the heat by like a healthy margin, got straight into the semi, and didn't know what to do with ourselves, and then cocked <laughs> up the semi. Um, and it's amazing how much you learn along the way. But I guess it was in that period, 2000 to 2010. That it changed. Um, that it changed. That, and it, it certainly changed soon after that because both Don and Ramon started rowing full-time under the sort of push of Christian Felkel at the time. 
and then um, the lightweight four that never quite made it, I guess, in that period. Um, all those oaks were full time. Let's go on to, to 2012, because obviously that's a, that's a big a milestone big for South African rowing. And tell us a little bit about getting back into the, the team there and taking on those four guys. I mean, I didn't know Roger at all. He claims I coached him, but I don't remember ever coaching him. Uh, I, don't, I remember him training hard with a guy called John Kelly after I'd left hearing about it. But uh, anyway, <laughs> this oak phones me out of the blue and says, um, you'd like to chat to me. So I had a uh, discussion with him. He said he'd like me to come back and, and, and see if I can make a contribution. And the funny thing about that was the first time I came back was at a camp at Bethlehem. Um, and I arrived there and then I was taken by Dustin Butler and Roger Barrow to a pub and interrogated. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> interrogated about rowing style, what I was going to do. They particularly worried about my discussion of transferring weight. Was it onto the seat? Was it on? I have no idea why, why that came. <laughs> anyway, um, I then got onto the water and essentially I, I started coaching. Um, and I kind of started introducing standard stuff for Paul Jackson, which is, you know, my, my view about racing. If you want to win a race, even pace it. Don't get too worried about where you are after the first 500. Um, and make sure that you're running the boat and moving with it all the time. You know, don't don't try and force it in any way. Don't try and quick hands it or slow hands and then go quick and all that kind of... It just didn't work for me. I'm more interested in, in the way the boat runs. And that comes from... I've got two rowing coaching mentors. One's Chris Kozanowski. When he was still the hard man of Eastern Germany, I think... In, uh, they've kind of softened him up in America. He's, <laughs> he's not the man that I remember. You know, he's still a hell of a good coach, but he's, he was a hard bastard in those days. And then the magician of rowing was a guy called Harry Mann. And Harry Mann used to come and help us um, right up to the Sydney Olympics. And I remember his boat, he was coaching with Martin McElroy, um, the men in black. Yeah, he coached the, the British eight to, yeah, yeah, to gold in yeah. 2000. Yeah, well, the finishing coach was Harry Mann. Harry Mann was a magician. He And he was, you know, the the synergy between the way I thought and him was just instantaneous. And, you know, he was into the magic of rowing, not the science of rowing. Mm. Chris was more into the science of rowing and the hardness of rowing. But Harry Mann was into the, he was into the art of and um, so I started coaching these guys. These are back in 2010, and I was coaching, and then toured with them right up to um, Carapiro. It wasn't a great tour, but we got 10th. Eh? And 10th was significant at Carapiro for a number of reasons. One was that we were making progress and that we were starting to row in a way that I think we could sustain going forward, as a, just as a style and as an approach. And then, but secondly, that it was important to Saskock and supporter. The resources could flow if we got 10th and above. And they couldn't flow if we did it. So 10th was our objective and we got there. And it took us a lot to get there. The other thing that was clear was there was a magic in that combination of Seaswear, Matt, uh, Bean and Tomo. Sometimes crews just click. 
that boat went significantly slower when Matt left. Not because we lost Matt's capability, but because also that team dynamic and that special jelly of, of sometimes crews come together and they just gel. So it was quite a long haul to uh, Bleda, Slovenia. Anyway, we trained like dogs and Matt was busily getting better. And um, during that time, Matt came back and sees where God's sick. Can you believe it? And so um, we went to Bled in that combination with uh, Tomo, Matt, Bean, and then with Tony. Yes. And we qualified by the skin of your teeth. <laughs> by half this table. Yeah. But we spoke know, to James about it and it's, it's it is great. such a mental race. It is, no, you're... I think that is probably one of the most stressful races. And I, you know, I'm also often quoted on saying there's no such thing as a risk-free medal. And you have to take risks to perform. You try and take as few as possible. You try and train as hard as possible so you don't have to go out there. But we were on a limb. So what I did was heavy the boys up without telling them, which I very seldom will do. Boy, <laughs> There was a slight tailwind blowing when they got in the water and went flat. But fact is, is that I think it worked for us. You know, That was the process to get qualified. The second thing that it taught me is you're not as good as where you come. You're as good as how far behind the leader you were. So we came 11, but we were probably closest to a gold medal. Not closest, but very close because we were, I'd worked out five and a half seconds too slow for gold. And that was... Um, was the big issue. So when Seasway came back and that gel happened, that was at least three of those five and a half done. And, and you know, I think one of the great things about South African rowing is we'd given up participating for the sake of it. We, we go there with, with a real, and I think Rogers brought this in really well, is we go there to perform. So that's essentially what Bled ta- uh, taught us. Can you tell us, if you can, what, what, what was it about the four of them that gave them a special affinity? I don't know. I think it was a special combination. No, Seaswear and Bean are special boat movers in the art yes. sense of the word. Matt is, a, is an incredibly powerful leader. You know, he had a... And, you know, everybody deferred to him quite quickly. Um, I always remember walking with him and we were at Lucerne. And I said, Matt, come, let's go for a walk. Um, and normally when I take athletes for a walk it's because I'm not happy with their behavior or their attitude one of the two or both (laughs) Um, so and I'm walking along with Matt and I and he says have I done something wrong and I said no but I need you to take the leadership position in this group Um, and I kind of we chatted about what we expect from each other because you know, a coach's central, central role is to push the boundaries. You know, athletes are very quick to get into comfort zones. And you've got to force it. And they get the hell in with you, but you've got to force it. And so my role was to, I mean, it's simple. I want you to be able to row at any rate, at any pressure, with instantaneous changes. You must be able to go from 48 to 18. 48 at 120% to 18 at, at 60% like that and um, so it was very good to to chat to Matt and then Tomo was just a you know he's not naturally skilled water wise he's an unbelievably good athlete 
you know. And so you had that really nice combination of skills and stuff. And then there's the unknown. I don't know why they gelled. You know, you don't know this. It just happens. You know, you, and I'm sure you guys have felt you get into a boat with somebody and it just like it goes. And we've always, all of us who've ever rowed experienced this. You know, it just like goes. And um, so there was that unknown. I don't know why they went fast. They just did. And they went fast from the very first stroke that we put them in that combination. And I remember thinking about who should stroke it because Matt was as good a stroke as he's been, probably. But Matt was much more a racer. You know, he could read things and call at the right time and change plans. And Whereas Sizwe is a naturally skilled water. I mean, he has unbelievably good skills. Bino was, a, was young, but very good technically as a number three, being able to pass the messages, you know, that sort of vital link role. So it was a quite an easy call to actually say this is how we're gonna sit. And they they all worked bloody hard in the water, which was actually a bit of a problem. Um, <laughs> especially in training, you know, you had just like a calma, calma. Yeah, I've heard some stories specifically about Matt, about how just speaking to John and James of the time, how he had uh, specific goals of never going under 155 on the ergo and the problem with Matt is if you're doing steady state he's pumping and you actually have to say no but what part of in at 60 and out at 75 are you you missing Um, you know because you've got to learn but you know at the end of the day that crew just gelled and it had nothing to do with Roger it had nothing to do with me it just happened to be like that so then talking about the Olympics what what are your expectations on final day so you push them off from the jetty and I know that that's a pretty crap place to be as as a coach but what are your expect, expectations for that day? I was fairly confident we would medal. I didn't know which colour would be and truth be told if we did it again it could have been a different colour. Because you also hadn't won you'd finished second in your heat and third in your semi I think so you hadn't yeah. done like obviously you you were, no, you no, were timing there, there it's all about couple, the farm final but yeah. it's it wasn't no, no. plain so, sailing so when I through. when I arrived at the Olympics I'd underestimated the dates but I'd lost that quite quickly during the Olympics <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't uh, I thought that it would be the Poms the Chinese and us battling down for the medals I thought the Swiss would be there I wasn't worried about the Aussies simply because they couldn't finish um, they were quite quick as a as a cruising speed and that worn out in the final and I thought the Danes would not be there so the mistake I'd made in Atlanta now Atlanta we remember I told you we won the heat but cocked up the the uh, semi um, was that I peaked too early I didn't graduate to peak for the final with these guys we said fine we're going to peak for the semi cock that up too um, because we weren't 100% at the semi. Um, but we were doing pass strokes the day before the heat. Um, and simply because I really wanted to make sure that, because there's a lot of rest. Eh? Yeah, so over and a week. And particularly if you, get, if you get from the heat to the, to the semi, as we did, even coming second, you know, that's a long time to recover. And so we took that recovery well. So we got on the water and I, I was clear that for better or for worse, we were in a really good space. 
And so I was on the medals. I wasn't, for me, a medal would have been, a good row was more important than the position because I knew the good row would give us what we wanted. And then when did you start uh, thinking they were, that they were going to win? And the answer is about the same time as you did, um, which was literally 10 strokes to go. <laughs> and nobody could. When did I know they were going to get the medal? Just before the 1,000 meter mark. You know, it's bloody difficult as a coach because you, your adrenaline is huge and you've got nowhere to release it. So, you know, you kind of look at blades of grass and start seeing the structure of the clouds and stuff because you, it's, it's like too much to deal with. And not only is it too much to deal with, you are completely helpless. You know, I was very quiet in that first 500, uh, first thousand on the bike. And then I had a lot to say for myself, I have to confess. <laughs> anyway, and the boys, you know, the boys were closer. Matt, of course, the reason we put him there is he called the plan 10 strokes earlier, you know, because things were going down fast. The push at the 400 to go mark came before the 1500. And then um, the boys just did it. Eh? And, then, and it was a tribute to just the composure and just how clinically they did it. They get to the end and we've won. So I'm sitting on my, with my bike there like this going, like this. And this pom in a tweed, brown tweed jacket puts it, says, I say, and I looked up to him, he said, very well done. I said, thank you very much. Because <laughs> they didn't like these expressions of joy. <laughs> They wanted you to be rather more civil. And I really couldn't give a damn at that stage. But you know, at the end of the day, it was it was our day and we took it. Yeah. So you, you touched on it earlier about uh, your passion for the, the four and the Cox's four. Um, what, what is it about the four that just sets it apart from the other boats for you? It is the most sensitive of the boats. And the thing about a four is it's, you know, in a four, an athlete can change this boat. We used to call it the fine form. Didn't call it a coxus or called it a fine form. And for good reason. Because the boat weight per man is very, very low. The second thing is the team's big enough to you know, pairs have really good team dynamics, but it's easier to get two oaks to gel than four. And then the last it's quick, eh? You know, it moves a, a coxus four. Very you know, boat. I mean uh, I know a, a quad moves even quicker, but you know that's it's not as dynamic as a as a boat. So I, I like the combination of the team. I think you can build more powerful teams, and I'm a I'm a strong believer that if you manage to clone Redgrave four times, you, you, they would have gone very slow. It's the differences that people bring to a crew that are so critically important. Not only their physiological differences, but their personal differences. The quirky oak, the oak who's always late, the bloody guy who's a bit serious. Etc., I, know, etc. I knew who was the guy who was always late in our fault. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> always late and stuff. And, and you've got more aggressive guys, you've got calmer guys. And, and just how you bring that, that together is exactly right. And, and it's also easier to introduce concepts. Like I introduced a couple of concepts. You know, you learn a lot. So practicing the sprint home in the Cox's Fall for London was Matt's idea. At one stage, and particularly in that Zinin camp before, 
um, London, the guy started getting a bit like intense and serious. So I had to introduce this concept of joie de vivre. You know, you can't take yourself too seriously. Where's the humor? Where's the lightness? Because if you are, if you're too intense, your emotional energy bank goes down. I've been a number of other things of gelling this thing and just interacting with guys. And that's why I love the four. But most of all, you can run a four. You can really just keep that thing going. Really move with the boat. Don't try and force it. Just send her as much as you can. Deliver as cleanly as you can. And then run and nurture that speed as much as you can. You know, and, and that's the sort of important part of rowing. So you can become expert in, in a boat. I mean, I can coach a pair. I could even, if I put my mind to it, coach a skull, I guess. But I love the four. Um, so keep going on the, the style of rowing, Jacko. What, if you had to think of the way you coach a boat and, and specific things you try to get out of your athletes, when you coach a four, what are the kind of, of things that you try to get across in terms of rowing technique to your athletes, things that you'd like to emphasize? Yesterday, how long have we got, eh? There are a couple of fundamental principles I coach and and the way I coach. So the first the first and the most fundamental of it is you must move with the boat. The second, which is trite, but it's hell of important, is that you must move the boat past the blade, not the blade past the boat. And then the third is you must train the way you want to race. And none of these things are at any point in time negotiable. That's how we're going to do it. We're not going to race something that we haven't trained. It's very important you get that right. You know, it's that old thing, um, train the way you want to race, don't race the way you want to train. You know, it didn't work like that. So for me, I think we spend far too much time trying to cajole boats. You know, I don't like quick hands away because you're trying to force the maximum speed off the finish and you've got to pay for it some way. Ditto, I don't like going slowly around this turn and trying to draw the boat under you and get that timing of slide and spoon. So for that, I I would say those are the fundamental principles. One of the other two concepts um, I, I believe I introduced, but even if I didn't, I'm very strong on them, is this concept of a draw plane and a recovery plane. And you must end your recovery on your draw plane. In other words, you lift your blade handle up to your draw plane and then push away. Because if you start pushing before that, you're actually lifting onto the onto the draw plane and then missing all of that water. But most of all, run the boat. Move with her. Feel her. You know, the one thing I always say about a boat, it is a girl. She is a girl. And she can be a real bitch. <laughs> You can stuff you over <laughs> properly. You know, I'm a strong believer that you don't go up a slide, this, the footboard comes at you. You know, you're both moving towards the finish. You know, at some stage you're moving towards the finish faster than the boat, and at another stage the boat's moving towards the finish faster than you. But at no stage are you either the crew or the boat not moving towards the finish. So it's, it's very much that kind of technique. And then the last important point is that don't start coaching crews when you haven't discussed how you're going to race. 
you don't have to discuss it up front, but you've got to introduce it very early on to say, guys, we are going to row even pace. Therefore, our cruising speed is very, very important. Therefore, the way we do steady state, and when I time you through the 500s, I'm not interested in doing one quick one, two slow ones, and a quick one. I want them all slightly slow, dead on the mark, 130 all the way down, one. 35 all the way down, whatever the numbers are. If we're steady stating in a four, yeah, I'd like you to do in calm conditions 152, 153 all the way down. That's as at 80 or 20 or whatever the number is. So, so that we understand that that's how we're going to race. We're going to come out of the start really quickly and then we're going to settle and race and see how things unfold. You know, there's that old saying which this guy Vavota, when I rode, used to say, is that you row to the thousand meter just to see who you are to get a bit tired. Then we start racing. Because nobody gives a shit who's through the 500 first. It's just vitally important. Vitally, vitally important to be in the lead come the last truck. Yes. So the mixture of that, I think if you asked, am I more the science of rowing or the art of rowing I think I'm more on the art side that's why I don't get involved much with programs I don't think rig's hell of important <laughs> uh, I, I do think the way we row our approach to our rowing our attitude to it our understanding of water and skills is, is going to bring you more medals than stuffing around with your rig or tinkering with your physiological program. So you've got a lot of uh, of technical aspects that you that you try to get right with the athlete. But then, what are you looking for in an athlete to to be able to get those those technical aspects right? I'm looking for somebody who is going to trust the process, um, and as a result, I need somebody to trust me as I trust them. And the second thing is I, and I think this is a difficult thing, if I can say I've run into both with both of you before, is that open to change. Let me push you out of your comfort zone. Let me infuriate you with rate requirements or five, three quarters and change requirements. <laughs> um, and that's why stroke play is so important to me. I would very seldom get on the water without doing one or other stroke play. And stroke play just means I'm going to radically ask you to change stuff. And it's rate or pressure. I always in rowing make a very strong distinction, as I will now, between pressure and quickness and timing quickness. You can be slow and hard, fast and hard, medium and hard. You can be... Uh, fast and light you know so so I always say that there's a very clear distinction so I expect athletes to do that I also expect athletes to question me I expect them to think I want them to be thoughtful people I look for thoughtful people um, I also require a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of aggression in an athlete too much I've coached very arrogant people in my life and I find them a complete pain in the ass um, but, you know, you've got to have a little bit of confidence and a little bit of aggression. And I'm also look for people who don't take themselves too seriously because the margins in what we do, you know, if you, if you did what we do in sport and in rowing in business, you would get fired immediately. 
<laughs> you know, I'm going to bet this much cost on that uh, chance of a return. You know, so, so we we deal in very small margins, and they're huge disappointments. And so, I expect people to be resilient, committed, light-hearted. In other words, not take themselves too seriously. Confident in their ability, bordering on arrogant. And if I poke them too hard, they must explode. <laughs> <laughs> That's and happened. that's happened on multiple occasions. <laughs> well, if somebody pucks it to you, they must explode. Yeah. But I think the important point is we want guys who are open to change, who understand that the role of the coach is primarily to push them out of their comfort zone, who are to trust the process that we present them. Because one of the things that happened in South African rowing at one stage was there was this idea that the animals were running the farm can't be like that. There's a coach and there are athletes. And at, and and you must be very clear who's in charge. But the point is is it's not a it's a it's a cooperative effort. It's a it's a common sense of purpose. You know, we're both going to the same place. We both want the same things. Um, and um, yeah we're not always going to agree. And you've you've coached lightweights, you've coached heavyweights. Can you speak a little bit about the differences that you've picked up on the, on the on the two groups, because I mean you took I, us. You mustn't tell the light race, but I really enjoyed coaching everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going for. Because you told me personally. <laughs> oh, no, I did. I think lightweights are by their nature, and it's a general statement, of course, are by nature a little bit more intense. So the difference between heavies and lighties are just heavies are more chilled. I guess, as a general statement. Um, the downside is is sometimes a little bit too chilled, I guess. You know, sometimes I miss the lighties, but I did really enjoy coaching the heavies. And the other thing about the heavies is they can move bloody quickly. You know, when that ball actually started gelling, it was pumping. But I think it's a quite it's a unique thing to get right, though, because the lightweights are not dealing with massive differences in power. Yeah. So they move. They yeah, have a lot true. of boat feel to to get it right. And I think when the heavyweights, you get a heavyweight crew that has that sort of boat feel and that can turn the boat and feel the boat like a lightweight does. That's where you get start to get uh, real, of course, real but, speed. You know, I think that those differences in power can come through. It is true that lighties, just by their nature, are going to be more tightly packed together. But Jacko, so um, we we uh, we want to talk about the the ergos a little bit. But do you think that there's something about the setup here that makes us not as fast on ergo, maybe, but has a trade-off on making us better on the water? Do you know, for me, the ergo is a critically important thing because it improves us. You know, to compare our scores to to the Brits or the um, Aussies or something is important. But, you know, when we won the gold at, at uh, um, London, you know, our scores were around the 622, 623. I mean, sure, Tomo had gone to 618, I think, or 616 as a once-off right towards the end, etc., etc. But we weren't in the sort of down in the 60-somethings. You know, we were six, seven seconds behind them. And I think that's a function of 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 the altitude, but I also think it's a function of, um, you know, even when I went to Atlanta, we just, our average score was about 624. When we went to Sydney, it was about 622. You know, there'd been that sort of slow progress. 
and then I think our average score is around 621 for London. 620, 621. I mean, there have been a couple of seconds progress. But as you said, the margins are small, though. You're not looking for 10-second jumps. You're looking for, yeah. for small second jumps. So really? just uh, sorry, talking a bit about the Ergo, because you were part of rowing before the Ergo was even around. And how was that a massive change when the, when the Ergo came in? So the important point is that um, the uh, Ratzeberg test was what I did as an athlete with before Ergo's, which was a six-minute test involving 50, 50 kilograms cleans. And essentially, it involved a whole range of exercises, including press-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, and squat jumps before, um, and then to st- stand on one of those benches with a 50-kilogram um, and do cleans that were below the toes up to your... So you had to drop below your toes. And if it didn't, then you didn't get counted. And the guy with the most cleans in the six minutes obviously was the best rower, uh, of course. <laughs> so it sounds like, you, sounds like you guys were the original CrossFit... No, no. The CrossFit enthusiasts yes, before no, CrossFit exactly, became a thing. Exactly. <laughs> and this came from Ratzeburg. You know, it was a German program, and, and you can't even remember it was East or West German, but it was some mad. Uh, in fact, I used to remember the name of the coach, but I can't. Anyway, so Ro, I think Ergo's has become hugely important for our sport and have contributed to the increase in speed that we see in, in uh, rowing. I mean, the Ergo's also a destructive machine, huh? You have to be very careful how you let Oaks row it. Yeah. Like, take Vince. He can't row an Ergo. And the reason he can't row an Ergo, and he's a very, very good boat mover. And Vince, sorry if you listen to this. Uh, <laughs> apologies, but, but it's the truth. <laughs> is that, um, is that he, used, he used to, his problem was he loaded the front of the Ergo so hard that he was catching stuff he couldn't finish. You know, it would just blow you know, and, and consequently, the ergo caused him a lot of injury and pain um, because he just would not or could not work this out. And so the ergo for Vince was only a physiological training mechanism. It wasn't ability for him to learn to row well. And in fact, you know, the way he rode in a boat and the way he rode in an ergo were like, you. if it wasn't the same guy, you would have thought it was different people. Yeah. So the ergo has been huge for us, I think, but... Um, don't overestimate it. It does sink if you put it, if you put it in the water. You know, the, my 10-year break was interesting. So let me tell you one of the, the technological advances that most increased the speed of rowing was the cleaver. So remember when I went to, to when I started rowing coaching, there was no such thing as a cleaver. We all had those Macon spoons. And the thing about it is, come back to one of my fundamental principles, is that a Macon's much more likely to move past the boat than a boat past the Macon. Uh, whereas a cleaver's more, it's, it's easier to, to get that connection and stick. Um, we, and certainly the lightweights up to, adopted the cleaver very quickly. It was very, it was instantly clear to me that this was a massive step forward. So I wondered when Rog asked me to come back or asked me to come and have a look and then come back full time, what had changed in, in uh, the 10 years I'd been away and, and what changed technically 
mostly I was interested in. And the truth of the matter is not a lot. What had metamorphosed was physiological. Just the way we train, the data, etc., etc. Then, uh, just talking about like, because I mean, obviously you've been coaching for so long. Do those uh, tough times take away and like just grind you down? Or is it, or the good times just make all those all those tough times really worth it I don't I guess you don't think of it like that you know I think that my school career was just a, a long series of mostly good results with some heartbreaking issues but the the result that really stuffed me over in my career was the semi-final at, at Atlanta we were gutted, you know, I mean, we were just, we sat in that change room and nobody said anything for half an hour, simply because there was nothing to say. We had cocked it. And as it turned out, and as I've reflected, we cocked it because I cocked it, not because the athletes cocked it. Just didn't know how to, just got that. It was just naivety and a lack of experience um, going into that thing. So, and those things are very good for you because when you learn such painful lessons and believe me they are incredibly painful you tend to become more thoughtful you're certainly not going to make that mistake again you're going to become much more careful about how you think things through um, and you're going to be a lot less forgiving on the little things that go wrong in your training and I think that combination of being less forgiving and being more thoughtful is, is very important. You know, after I came back, I think we had a series of, you know, qualifying for the Olympics was, I, yeah, Rog took many days to recover that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot of looking after that night. You know, um, we were ecstatic. You know, um, we were, this was the best thing that ever happened to us. Um, so, you know, you see the positives. Getting 10th at Carapiro got us into the money. We needed the money mm. to qualify. So we got in by the skin of our teeth twice, and then we won the gold by the skin of our teeth. So it doesn't matter. We did it. And and, and I think that the, you know, I've, I've, as I've grown older, I've, I've grown to understand this, the importance of hope. And if you got, haven't got progress your hope becomes vain, you know. And as long as you've got that progress, you know, and so focus on the progress. Are you are you climbing this ladder? You don't have to be top of the world. And it's interesting how many crews are world championships the year after the Olympics that often aren't even in the final come the Olympics. You know, it's interesting to to see that it's very important to just get that progression going. Oh, actually, if you can win a world championships, let's do it. You know, Bean and and, um, and Tomo won it, not the one after Olympics, but the next mm. one in the in the pair. I mean, double. in the double, yeah. So, you know, I think that losing is part of it. Yeah, because um, it's, a, it's a constant theme that comes up. So when you chat to people, then they, they you don't, you don't realize how many tough times there were but each tough time is a new lesson is and and as long as those as you say as long as there's some progression you're just feeding this this desire to to perform and and, and at the end of the day it will come right and the point is is what are you doing with the 
the progress and how are you making it be better and again it's painful you work so hard and the question is what do you do with it and again it's just got to make you more determined but it's got to make you more thoughtful and it's got to make you harder and as long as that happens harder in a in a in a really positive sense not in an aggro macho her sense but in a in a sense that you're going to allow your day-to-day routines to have fewer things that don't go right you're going to be less forgiving on yourself as an athlete and as a coach in terms of what you expect from yourself on a daily basis because you know you can't want to win when you get there that's got to be done You've got to want to win when you're on the eighth day of the high altitude camp in Lesotho on the 14th kilometer of a row that's not going well. That's when you've got to want to win. You know, and um, so you, if you want it, you've got to want it now. You can't wait until you get to Limpsar or whatever. Or I'll get to Lucerne. No, 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 I really want it. Yeah. That's not how it works. Because then you will find it. So I think that those hard times... and. And I'm trying to think what were my gut-wrenching times where, where at that semi-final Atlantic is something I'd never, ever want to experience again. And I make bloody sure <laughs> I have never been that bleak in my own career in my life. Was that part and parcel why you took such a long break after the Sydney ones? Well, I immediately started in, uh, in Atlanta. I mean, to Sydney. No, I took a break because of my boys. Uh, I didn't want to grow up, grow up without them. Um, I didn't want them to grow up without me. Um, and interestingly, I sat them down as we do, um, Ev and Nick, and I said, listen, I'm giving that up, uh, this rowing up. And they looked at me, and I, what was Ev must have been eight, and Nick must have been six, that kind of number. And they thought I'd completely lost my mouth. What? You want to come watch me play soccer? What? <laughs> I want to be there when you do the violin or whatever it is, you know. And I'm very pleased I did that. Um, because, you know, the one thing about coaching is it, it consumes you. And if you try and work and coach, geez, if you try and coach only, you know, my hats go off to the professional coaches. But, you know, we've got such good coaches coming through in South Africa. You know, if I look at Roger, and of course, at um, AJ, but I look at Tiggs, I look at Grant Dodds, I look at... There are a myriad of the guys that I haven't mentioned. And if you look internationally how many coaches we've got, John Geary, um, there are a whole lot of them um, who've, who've really done well as coaches. Um, I'm very, very positive for the future that Simon Rowing's in really good hands. And are we going to see you back guys, in a... The next question naturally leading on. If there's a fall for Tokyo, Jacko, and Roger gives you a call, says we need your help, you say yes? Oh, no. Um, and I'd, I'd want to know a few things first. And the most is, who's the oak coming through? So if he called me, if he gave me a coach, if he gave me a call, yeah, if he gave me a call now, I wouldn't, I'd say, Roger, let's go and have a beer and talk about whatever. Um, so not now but if he gave me a call it would very much not be that coach it would be some sort of finishing role some sort of support role some sort of 
it wouldn't be a once-off. I wouldn't want to do that, but I'd want some sort of, you know, like, for example, if it was ticks, I would come in twice a week. Ticks, what are you working on? What do you want me to work on? You're the man, I'm out of here. Um, and then climb under the fence at, at the Olympics to be with Oaks, you know. So it would very much be in that support role because, you know, at the end of the day, the more you do it, the more people want you to do it. Um, and not don't, don't underestimate, I've loved being part of South African Rowing for the last, what was it, six years, I guess. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I got on really well, a lot of respect for my colleagues in rowing, for Rog, the leadership he was doing, all that kind of stuff. But it's time for the New Yorks to step up to the plate, isn't it? And yeah, so sure. my role will always be, from now on, I think, uh, support. Anyway, that's all got my phone number. <laughs> all of them. That's Even the, the young guy. I, I fully expect you to get some, <laughs> yes. some calls later. Yes. If no, not, no, just they send some me, beers. They send me some videos. Like, before SA Champs, I was getting videos from competing schools. You see, <laughs> that's of course, my, my, my allegiance is with, with St. Andrews. So... You know, so Chris got the coach's eye thing back with, you know, all the writing on him, chatting and do this and do that. That's you know, Grant Dodds also, you know, as <laughs> Evan went to St. John's, you know, I often will. And, you know, at the end of the day, anybody wants to talk, they've got my cell number. It's quite widely available. They just pop me a video, give me a call, have a coffee. You know, because I dig chatting, right? I mean, I yeah. enjoy, I really enjoy sitting here chatting to you mm. about this great sport of ours because I believe it's one of man's greatest team sports. Mm. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So, we've, we've done the, the, the major questions that we had and we just have a few quick-fire questions that we, we ask all, the, all, all guess. the guests on the show. So, we'll start off with the first one, which is, if you could, I think it's going to be an obvious one, but if you could race... Any boat class at the games, uh, what would uh, it be for you? Yeah. <laughs> There's only Easy. one boat class. <laughs> there is only one boat class. <laughs> yes, Cox is four, for sure. Yeah. You could choose who the other three teammates would be in your boat when you did row at the Olympics. It could be rowers, it could be family members, it could be anyone that has existed on the planet. Who would those three members be? in the boat with me yes. yeah so if you could uh, hypothetically yeah hypothetically if you could speaking. row a Cox's four with, with any three people who would that you've met or not met or that you just thought would be cool to, to, to jump in a boat with who, who would you like to to put in your crew I must admit um, London was special because my wife was there and then Evan arrived unannounced and was also there and that was you know walking afterwards and hearing their the experience of the race was incredibly special. But the people I would row with, John Geary, good mate of mine, John Stock, who recently died, but uh, him and I, when we were going for, we used to get in a pair, and that, we, we, if you ask me who did I gel with, was John Stock. We got in the pair, and we were clubbing people, the whole of South African rowing, <laughs> and all the young Turks coming through. So he would be in the boat, um, I guess. And I'm going just with the rowers, you know. I'm not going to say I'd love Paulie to be in the boat with me. You know, that's not... Uh, um, one of my Ed Zogs, you know. Uh, uh, one of those Hasselbach boys. 
Okay. Good oaks, you know, but certainly John and John. And then if you could select a four out of everyone that you've coached, everyone in their prime, who would your, your four be? Serious. That's oh. quite an intense question to ask him on the spot. It's actually not that a difficult question. Right? Probably time. be, I'd have a battle at stroke between Mike Hasselbach and Siswe. Ivan Pence would definitely be in that boat. I guess Matt would be in it. Roy Pepper, probably. Probably Roy. Roy or John Gearing, one of the two. Oh, some old school names yeah, coming out there. Some, some hectic yeah, ones. Oh, no, those oaks were bloody good at and people close would be people like Steve Hasselbach. Um, this is just a four, eh, Paul? It's not an eight. No, no. But I'm <laughs> just going, going I mean, the point is... It's a squad. It's a squad. I always like two bums, one seat, eh? Yeah, um, it, makes good, it makes for fast Yeah, boats. I certainly think... Um, yeah, those oaks, they... You know, and all of them have one thing in common. They weren't the fastest ogre pullers, but they were bloody good rowers because I you know I give me an oak who can row before I can pull a ergo okay. I think ergo times within five seconds are, are much of a muchness um, once it gets more than that I'm still starting to pull a little bit heavily in favour of, of a ergo yeah the ergo boy simply because I'm probably arrogant enough to think we can fix it <laughs> <laughs> okay what is your your favourite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again London. London. Another, My easy. second favorite rowing race was a Buffalo. So I think it was 93. Rhodes was the main oaks. Um, and I had a Ed's Four, which was weakish. It was Mike and Steve Hasselbach and Andrew Fussell. And I think another call, I think it was GB was still there. Um, and uh, there was a Wema 4, which had a lot of guys, including Ivan in it. Yeah. Um, I think my dad was in there as well somewhere. No, he was a bit later. He was just a bit later. And we were the long... And luckily, the national coach at the time, a guy called Harold Blum, had talked to both Rhodes and Wema to, you know, on the importance of getting ahead. And I'd done my traditional thing. And uh, we came out the start... It was start and we were like, I was following and we were like two lengths down. And at about the 900 meter mark, we picked up the women thing and we went through them. And then we had a royal battle with Rhodes beating them um, on the line. And they were so, and then come SA Champs, they clubbed us. And they were much, much better for than us. But it was a spectacularly well executed race where a lot of a lot of um, luck came our way and we also rode to get into lane one. You know, after the London Olympics, people said that's one of the greatest rowing races of all time. I said, rubbish, man. But actually it was. No, it is. It was unbelievable. You know, um, you never want your crew to win quite. You don't mind how they win, but preferably not quite as tightly as that. But, you know, the end of the day was at 250 meters to go, there were four crews yes, it dead was level. Unbelievable. No, it, and it's a it phenomenal is, race. So it is one of the, and, and they said that and for a, for a year, I kind of, ah, rubbish man. But actually it was one of the greatest races of all time as a spectator event. 
Yes. As yes. an execution. As no, that a is where holding rowing, your nerve. That is how rowing, how exciting rowing can be. If you need to show yeah. someone how exciting rowing can no, be, that's I, the race. Yeah. I often for uh, members of my family that I want to educate them a little bit more about rowing, I put the lightweight four race on the TV and I just explain context of what's what's happening so it it was one of the greatest races of all time and the fact that i was part of it privileged enough to be part of it was bloody very cool so uh the our next quick fire question is what is your your 2k pb but we're not sure if you even have one of those so do you have a result from your uh, what is it? The Rathdunbach <laughs> test or something. I butchered the name there. The Ratzeberg yeah, test. test. Can you even... Uh, I can't even remember. Because you might not have... No, but it was well in the 50s, eh? 50s uh, of what? 50 cleans. Okay. 57 or something. In six minutes. We can no, apply I this. I was never the greatest. Don't lie. Hey, people listening. Well, yeah, no, they right. will do their research and yeah, come I back. Let them, let them do that. Don't do this. <laughs> I can't remember. But I don't have a 2K PB. Okay. I have a 3K run PB. Okay. Um, which was 9 minutes 46 somewhere around there. That's pretty yeah, quick. pretty good. <laughs> I, don't yeah, know. I could we do that. Were bloody pumping. But it was a 3K. I mean, it was a sprint. Yes. But I was never the fastest athletes I mean John and Doug Gow and those I just clubbed me on that sort of stuff just when they got into boat they were although I'll have a different view <laughs> <laughs> we all have to get them on <laughs> yeah you yeah. should get John Gearing on so yeah but anyway last question of the day if you had to choose a different sport to compete or coach at the Olympics which would it be rhythmic gymnastics <laughs> no um all the talk about the feel of rowing yeah. is not too far-fetched, to be and honest. Paul often I just, told us I'm to ballerina, yes. My, uh, my, uh, yeah, I mean, in, this, in the continuum of human effort, we're much more like ballet dancers than sumo wrestlers. Um, no, you know, back in the day, we weren't allowed to leave the Olympic Village. We had to go and support the guys. We used to get free tickets. And at the Atlanta Olympics, I got a an arbitrary ticket to the rhythmic gymnastics finals. And those athletes blew me away. The hairs on the back of my head stood up. I was unbelievably impressed. But I probably wouldn't do that. I'd probably go ice skating, something like that. Okay. That's you know, I, also, then you would get a change to, to Winter Olympics as well, which yes, would be exciting. Yeah, would be very brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm interested in cross-country snow skiing because I read a medical journal once to say that that in the field against the metrics that they had, rowing was only the second toughest sport yes. in the world and cross-country snow skiing was the toughest. Yeah. And so, it could be cross-country snow skiing or some form I think that's something that we all have to do one day to, to appreciate. Because there's a, there's definitely a special there's definitely a certain amount of pride that rows take in knowing that what they do is one of the hardest things you can do to yourself. Yeah, it's physiologically and mentally demanding. That's why yes. we do it. If it was easy, we wouldn't do it. <laughs> no. Cool. Well, that's a wrap for us. Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, it. Thank no you so worries. much for giving us a huge amount of your time, and I'm sure this uh, will turn out very very well. Yeah. 
Hey, it's Jake and Lawrence again. If you're enjoying the show, please share it and let your friends know about it. Also, don't be afraid to leave a comment telling us what you liked, what you didn't like, or any ideas that you have for the show. And you can leave that at theroadshowsa at gmail.com. That's theroadshowsa at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and contact us there if you just search The Row Show or on Instagram uh, where the tag is at roshowsa. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, I'm at Britain L, so that's Britain underscore L. And you can find Jake at at Jake Milton Green, all lowercase, all one word. You can also find any info or links on this week's episode in our show notes below. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for listening in. We out. I think we're good at that, hey? That was fucking sounding good, yeah. dude.